So I want you to take a moment and think about what is making you anxious right now. I know that's an uncomfortable thing to do, but I'm going to ask you to do it. Think about what's making you anxious. It might be something big. Like maybe there's a surgery coming up or you're a student and you're thinking about finals. It might be something smaller, just like a difficult conversation, you know, is coming up this week. But get, get in your mind, what is making you anxious at the moment? Now, why are you anxious about it? Oh, there might be many reasons why you're anxious about it, but I bet at least part of it is you don't know how it's going to turn out. You, you, you know this thing is coming, big or small, but, but you're just not sure how it's going to turn out. The future is scary. The future makes us anxious precisely because it's unknown. Now, not all the future is unknown. If, if I know how something is going to work out, if I know what's going to happen, I will still maybe have complicated feelings about it, but it won't be the feelings of anxiety, right? I, if it's something that's painful, I, maybe I'm going to feel dread, like going to the dentist to have a filling done, right? Uh, or, or, or maybe I'm just really excited because something really happy is about to happen, and I know what's going to happen, and so my feelings are just ones of excitement and joy. Or maybe I just know that this thing that's coming, I know it's going to be hard, so I'm just resolved. Knowing what's coming doesn't make the future easier, necessarily, but it does mean I'm, I'm prepared for it. And I, I know how to feel about it. It's, it's sort of like the difference between your first roller coaster ride and every roller coaster after that, right? That first one, you don't quite know what to expect. After that, well, you kind of know because roller coasters, as exciting as they are, are very predictable. The problem with life is that life is not like a roller coaster. History is a very uncertain guide. As the financial pros say, past performance is no guarantee of future results. But what if, what if the past could reliably predict the future? You know, one of the distinctives of Christianity is that God is not just the Lord of history. He's actually using history to reveal the future, particularly to his people. So just consider for a moment, what difference would it make in your life if you could look at the past and know with great certainty your own future? Wouldn't that be great? Well, maybe it'd be great. Hmm. Well, this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to look at the past in order to tell the future. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 791. 791. Daniel chapter 8. This is one of the stranger chapters in all of the Bible. And we're going to take a look at it today. 
Uh, Let me just read the first two verses just to kind of set the scene. Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. All right, so that's the scene. The year is 548 BC. It is two years after the vision that Daniel saw in chapter 7. He's still in Babylon. And the 70 years of exile that were promised by God are, are fast running out. We're now three years into Belshazzar's reign. Hopes are surely running high. The 70 years are almost up. But what's going to happen when those 70 years are up? Not only are our hopes running high, I imagine anxiety is running high in Israel as well. What's going to happen? Well, all of a sudden, Daniel is, is kind of whisked away on this visionary magic carpet ride to Susa. What's Susa? Well, Susa will, will be the capital of the future Medo-Persian Empire. It is 200 miles to the east of where Daniel is in Babylon. It, it is actually where the book of Esther is going to be set, a book that happens 65 years later. And he, he has this vision, and we're told that the vision is disturbing. Look at the last verse of this chapter, verse 27. The vision's now over, and he says, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Daniel's disturbed by what he saw. What did he see? Well, Daniel needed to know, given what was coming, that, that God was in control because the future was going to be really, really difficult for him, as we're going to see. And Daniel needed to know that God was in control of the future. But here's the funny thing. As we come to this passage as as modern-day Christians, Daniel's future is our past. Like We're we're looking at this, this historical event that happened. So while Daniel needed to know that God was in control of the future, I want to suggest that our lesson is similar but slightly different. Here's here's what I want to convince you of. With the past under God's control, we've no reason to fear the future. With the past under God's control, and we know that, as I'm going to try to demonstrate, we have no reason to fear the future. There are three things that we're going to learn from Daniel's vision. We're going to step through it in in three, three distinct steps. As we do, I want you to consider what it would mean for you today to trust the God who uses the past to reveal the future, your future. All right. What's the first thing that we learn? As we walk through the vision, the first thing that we learn is that God's people will remain exiles. 
God's people will remain exiles. Look there again at verse 1. I'm just going to read the beginning of the vision. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly. But when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven." All right, so we're getting used to this. Once again, Daniel has a vision, and what does he see? He sees beasts. Now, these are more familiar beasts. They're not crazy, phantasmagorical beasts like we saw last week. It's a, it's a, it's a ram and a goat. So the, this first one, this ram, has two horns. One is longer than the other, and it came up second. And what's the ram doing? It's charging everywhere. Like, no other animal can stand in its way. There's no rescue from it, we're told. There in verse 4, we're told that it became great. It did whatever it wanted. That ram is having a happy life. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, actually specifically out of the west, comes this goat charging at him, moving at such speed, it seems like his feet don't even touch the ground. Verse 5, it charges the ram with this huge horn, this singular horn out in front of it. It tramples the ram it defeats the ram in all of its fury. And we're told there in verse 8 that it becomes powerful, even arrogant. It does whatever it wants until that horn is broken and four horns grow in its place, horns that go in every direction of the compass. So what do we make of this vision? Well, just like we saw in chapter 7, we don't have to guess. Actually, a, a voice directs the angel Gabriel to explain the vision to him. So look with me in verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing. When he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And then he touched me, made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn 
represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. All right. So Daniel responds first like like almost everyone in the Bible when they see an angel. He falls down. He falls flat on his face. It's almost like he is knocked unconscious when the angel starts speaking to him. But then after the angel Gabriel revives him, the the angel explains what the vision means. He says, look, the ram represents the Medo-Persian empire. The the goat represents the Greek empire. The, The single horn of the goat represents the first king of that empire, who is Alexander the Great. We know who that king is from history. And the four horns represent four kingdoms that come after the Greek empire, after Alexander dies and the Greek empire is broken up. All right, so what we've got here is basically straightforward prophecy in this vision. And we know it's pretty straightforward prophecy because we've seen and considered this history before. We've seen it before in chapter 2 and chapter 7 that there would be these four empires. One would succeed the other. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in history. Only now here in chapter 8, we're not looking at all four. We're zooming in on the second and the third empires, the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires. Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C., So that's Daniel's future. And his empire was indeed broken into four smaller empires, ruled by Seleucus in the east, by Ptolemy in the south down in Egypt, uh, by Lysimachus in, in Asia Minor, what we now know as Turkey, and ruled by Cassander in Greece itself. Now, why in the world would the Jews need to know that? Why why would the Jews in the the 500s BC need to know what was going to happen several hundred years later? Well, I kind of intimated at it earlier, right? With the 70 years of exile almost over, I mean, everybody's everybody's wondering, what's what's God going to do? He's going to bring us back from exile. when, When he does... Surely, I mean, like, of course, everybody's assuming he's going to restore us to the political independence and security that we had before, right? Wrong. That's not what was going to happen. Daniel's vision reveals that foreign powers would continue to rule over God's people even after they had returned to Israel, not just for a short while, but for centuries. Century after century, this is going to happen. And and they're not just going to rule over God's people. These foreign powers are going to do whatever they want to do. They're going to act as they please. And there will be no one to rescue God's people from them. This is why God's people needed to know. They needed to be prepared prepared to live as strangers and exiles, as people without power, sojourners in their own land. And Christian, not much has changed. Israel's experience is a a type. It's 
It's a historical prophetic analogy of our own. That's the way Paul describes Israel's experience in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Christ, in one sense, we have been brought home, right? We're, we're, we're no longer in exile. We are no longer strangers to God. We have been brought home and into the kingdom of God in and through Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. But listen to what Jesus has to say about the coming of that kingdom. In Matthew 24, verse 3, he says, while sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus replied to them, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginning of labor pains. So Jesus says, look, the kingdom has come in me, but life is going to go on here on earth, and nation is going to rise up on nation. Empire will follow empire. There's going to be wars. It's going to be tough. But hasn't the kingdom of God come? Isn't that what Jesus said he came to do, to bring the kingdom of God? Didn't he declare in his preaching the kingdom of God is near? Well, listen to what he says to Pilate as he stands on trial for his life. In John 18, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the kingdom of God has come. Political power is not in our future. John 18, verse 36. In response to Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Ever since I was a boy, growing up in the 70s, Christians have been fed a lie. They've been fed a lie by, well, when I was a kid, it was the moral majority. Now it's the Christian right. And, and here's the lie. The lie is that if we just gain the levers of power, we can turn this nation around. Now, I don't want to pick on the moral majority, and I don't really want to pick on today's Christian right because they didn't invent the lie. We could trace the lie back to, I regret to say, some of my favorite people, the Puritans of Great Britain. We could trace it back to Calvin's Geneva. We could trace it back even further to various Roman Catholic kingdoms throughout medieval Europe. We can trace it back all the way to Constantine himself. This is an old lie. We have forgotten Augustine's insight that as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms simultaneously, two cities, the city of God and the city of man. 
and the power of the latter, the city of man, can never bring in the power of the former, the city of God. We cannot use the one to bring in the other. The message of redemptive history from from the beginning of Scripture all the way through to the end is that we as believers are always like Abraham. Abraham, who is the father of the faithful. Abraham, who is the model of what it means to live by faith. Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10 tells us that Abraham lived as a foreigner in the land of promise looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. So one of the things that we learn from Daniel's future and our past is that we need to give up on the siren call of political power. We we, we need to renounce our love affair with that siren call and learn again what it means to live as exiles, to to witness to our faith, not in power, but in weakness, to to endure faithfully, no matter who happens to be in power today. To demonstrate a patient faithfulness when it's easy and when it's hard. You know, the American experiment will come to an end one day. I have it on good authority. And it's not because the progressives win the next election. It's because the Bible tells me so, that every kingdom will fall. Now, I don't look forward to that day. But my question for us as a church is, will we know how to live as followers of Christ when it's no longer being supported and helped and encouraged, propped up by by law and by culture? Will we know how to live as followers of Christ when we're no longer in the majority, when we're not particularly well-liked? You know, in, in some ways, I think the way we should be thinking about the present day is like... Um, it's like a, like a training day, right? You know, if you, if you play football or if you, you play basketball, some sport, uh, you, you go to practice and, and, and you train. And, and you, you, you train against game day because you know game day's coming and stuff's going to get thrown at you game day. And if you, you haven't been practicing, if, if you're not prepared for game day, well, game day is not going to go so well. Brothers and sisters, our, our life is not like a, the lives of a lot of Christians around the world today. They're like deep in game day. But life in America is more like Tuesday afternoon practice. And I wonder how many of us spend a lot of these practice days uh, just sort of trying to avoid the hard work of practice looking for ways to to get out of the uncomfortable situation and just avoid it altogether, looking for ways to to duck even the mild discomfort and persecution that we might face here now. Boy, if we can't face 
the mild discomfort of being a Christian in America today. What will we do when game day arrives? And game day will arrive. It may not be in my lifetime, it might be in my children's lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime, but, but I need to understand I'm, a, I'm like a player coach. I'm not only playing the game, I'm preparing the next generation to play the game as well. Are we showing up for practice and giving it our all? Are, are, are we willing to, to step into hard, but let's face it, kind of only mildly hard situations now? The Lord has been kind to give us a lot of opportunity to practice. But if we're skipping practice, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised if game day does not go well. Now, what about those of you, because this is now the second sermon in a row, that have been pretty negative about government and government power. So what about those of you, and there are many of you in our own congregation, who actually work in government? Your teachers, uh, maybe you're involved in, in municipal government in some way, you're a, a city employee, you're involved in law enforcement in one way or another. What, what does all of this mean for you? Well, by all means, do your work. And, and do it as well as you can. Do, do good work as long as the Lord has you serving in whatever capacity you're serving in city, local, state, even federal government. You, you know, that's the example of Daniel, right? Daniel served as a civil servant in a pagan empire for nearly 70 years. And we get a few chapters on his life, and, and the few chapters that we get are the chapters that show him giving bold and dramatic witness to his faith in God. But I, I want to call your attention to his life as it's not recorded in Daniel. Like all the days of those 70 years that didn't make it in, because they weren't dramatic, they were ordinary. Like, like an ordinary day for Daniel when he refused to accept that bribe. An ordinary day for Daniel when, as we're, we're told in, in chapter six, like every day, he, he would pause three times a day to, to pray. And he didn't do it in such a way that nobody knew, everybody knew he did this. He prayed. And an ordinary day in which he brought his integrity with him to work. Brothers and sisters, if, if you're working in whatever capacity for government, you can do the same. You can string together ordinary day after ordinary day after ordinary day, just being faithful, bringing your integrity to work with you, not taking shortcuts, doing good work, but doing it as a believer, doing it in such a way that they see you pausing to pray. They, they know that you're depending on the Lord. But even as we do that, none of us should think that if we just had more Christians in government, the very nature of government would change. No. Even as we give ourselves to doing good work, we remember that God's plan demonstrated in history 
is that God's people will demonstrate their faith by enduring under hostile rule, not exercising it. We want to keep our hope in the right place. God's people will remain exiles until God comes back to take us home. The Jews needed to understand that in Daniel's day, and so do we. Here's the thing. It gets worse. Not only does, he will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. We'll stop there. So Gabriel says that there's going to be a king towards the end of these four kingdoms that followed the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And this particular king is going to be ruthless, we're told in verse 23. He's going to destroy the holy people, verse 24. And he's not only going to exalt himself, but he's going to cultivate a culture of deceit. Verse 25, false religion is going to prosper under his rule as he stands against God himself, the prince of princes. Now, when we compare Gabriel's interpretation to the vision that Daniel had that I read at first, it becomes pretty clear, I think, that the heavenly army and stars that that this horn causes to, to fall to the earth, this is a reference not to angels, but to Israel, the people of God, who are known as the, the army of God. God is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, a reference to Israel. And now Israel is falling. Many are deceived by this king into what we're told is a, a rebellion, a religious rebellion in which they trade the, t- the true worship of God in his temple for a false worship that leads to their own destruction. So who is this horn and when does it happen? There is pretty much universal agreement amongst biblical scholars and commentators that this horn is a guy named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That's a big long name that you don't need to remember. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Why do they think that? Well, he comes at the end of this fourth kingdom, or towards the end of one of these four kingdoms. Antiochus ruled the Seleucid Empire. That empire stretched from Pakistan all the way west to Palestine. He reigned for 11 years. And during those 11 years, he sought to, to Hellenize his whole empire. He wanted to turn everybody into Greeks. He loved Greek culture. And, and so he set about very systematically and deliberately forcing the Jews to abandon Yahweh in favor of the Greek gods. He actually had a te- uh, an altar to Zeus set up in the temple in Jerusalem and, and caused the sacrifices to Yahweh to, to, to cease altogether. 
And, and throughout his reign and throughout his empire, Jews who refused to go along with his Hellenizing plans were put to death. Over the course of those 11 years, faced with the choice of death or worshiping a Greek god, many Jews rebelled. They apostatized. They said, right, all right, new ruler, new god, we'll go with Zeus. But some faithful ones, the holy ones, refused, and many were put to death. They died for their faith. It's no wonder that Daniel was disturbed by the the vision that he's given. It's not just that the people of God are going to continue to live as exiles and strangers, powerless in their own land. It's that God's people will be persecuted even to death in their own land. And and once again, we we need to understand that this is not just a, a history lesson. I probably spent more time on the history than I even should have. But what we, what we need to understand is that this is a history that's pointing forward. That this, Im- this image that, that Daniel's given of, of the desolation of his people, you see that there in, in verse uh, 13. Actually, I haven't even read that yet. But in verse 13, the angel says, the, reg- the regular sacrifice, the, the rebellion that makes desolate, This this image of the desolation of God's people at the hands of a wicked ruler is an image that Daniel's going to pick up. He's going to repeat it again next week in chapter 9. It's going to come up again, I think, in chapter 11. But this is the first occurrence of it. And it is part of the pattern of redemptive history, a pattern that God has established to prepare us for what's coming. Gabriel tells Daniel that this vision refers to the time of the end. Well, well, that's kind of weird because it's clearly about this guy, Antiochus, in the 160s BC, and that's obviously not the end because here we are. So how can it be about him and about the end? Which is a phrase that always refers to kind of the end of time. Well, because it's part of the pattern. You see, we're not surprised Jesus alludes to our passage. He actually quotes Daniel 9 when when he predicts the the desecration and the overthrow of the temple by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. We heard that read earlier in our service from the Gospel of Mark. 60 years after Jesus uses that image to talk about the overthrow of the temple, John is going to pick up that imagery, the imagery of Daniel 8, and he's going to describe the, the religious beast who deceives the world into false worship. Listen as I read to you from Revelation chapter 13. And just listen for the the echoes of Daniel chapter 8. He's describing this beast. He says, it deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Looking past the fall of Jerusalem to the very last day, both in 
the reading in Mark or, or its parallel in Matthew. You heard it earlier. Jesus declares that, that false prophets, deceiving prophets, will arise to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see, the pattern of redemptive history is clear. From, from Satan's first entry into the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 in the form of a certain serpent, all the way through to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, forward to, to Titus, forward even to the person that Paul, the Apostle Paul will refer to as the man of lawlessness, who will cause a great apostasy and falling away from the truth. He talks about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again and again and again, antichrists, animated by satanic power and hatred, will come along seeking to corrupt, to compromise, and ultimately destroy God's people. And, and, and we know that there's a satanic power behind these antichrists. We're, we're, we're even told there in, in Daniel chapter 8, his power will be great, but it will not be his own. It will come from another, a demonic source. And so we should not be surprised when the next Antichrist arises, when the next one comes. Christian, we should not be caught off guard as if something unusual were happening to us, as 1 Peter 4.12 puts it. We should be a people who are prepared prepared for opposition, prepared for temptation, prepared for apostasy. Because we've been warned. We've been warned by the pattern of history itself, a redemptive history that tells us our future. And what I want you to really be aware of, though, given Daniel's language, is that as Daniel sees this future Antichrist, what he focuses on is his deception. The opposition comes deceptively. I think we often assume these days, and we have certain authors to thank for it uh, from the 70s, not everything is the 70s fault, but this is one of them, 60s and 70s. Uh, because of some of these authors and the way that they kind of took hold the popular imagination, we assume that when Antichrist comes, he's going to be this like obvious enemy who leads with, with brute force and cruel persecution. But that's, that's not what Gabriel emphasizes here when he, when he interprets the, the vision. Gabriel emphasizes, look there in verse 23, he's skilled in intrigue. Verse 25, he, he points to his cunning. He, he points to his, his love of deceit, and his actually, actually his, his ability to, to cause deception to, to prosper. And he points to his pride, much the way John does in Revelation 13, using that language of deception. You know, there's more than one way to throw truth to the ground. That's Daniel's phrase from verse 12. Yeah, yeah there's, 
there's just outright making the truth illegal or brute force opposition. But there's also just always calling the truth into question. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just asking a question. I'm not denying it. I'm just asking a question. There's presenting half-truths as if they are whole truths, which then become untruths. There's there's Pilate's move, questioning the possibility that we even have access to truth. What is truth? Can we even really know it? And then there's just flat-out lying. Christian, this is why it is so important that we know the truth. It's why back at the beginning of the year, I challenged the congregation, read one more book of theology than you were originally planning to this year. That might mean one, right? Is, is it just because I, I, I love theology and I want you to love theology too? No, 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 no. It's because we need to know the truth. We need to be people that are immersed in the scriptures, who are deeply theologically literate, who who know what the truth is about the Trinity or the incarnation or the atonement. And yes, those are big highfalutin words. And it it sounds like really, really intense, like just smart people theology. But, But no, Christian, you need to understand those things. Because it is precisely at those points that the enemy will come and deceive you with a half-truth, with with a statement of the truth that's just like mm, 10 degrees off. That 10 degrees is enough to make shipwreck of your faith if carried all the way through. Brothers and sisters, give yourselves to knowing the truth because the enemy is far more likely to come at you with sweet words of deception than he is with a cruel whip of persecution. I think we especially need to know the truth because we need to be able to recognize the lie, the big lie, when it comes. You know what the big lie is? This was an idea that has been around for a long, long time, but it was particularly popularized by uh, by the Nazis, by Joseph Goebbels. The big lie is the lie that is so large, so outrageous, that most people, when they hear it, cannot even begin to imagine that someone could be so shameless to tell it. So it must be true because no one could be so audacious and shameless to make that up. So there must be evidence for it. It it, it must be true. Friends, that's the big lie. And in our age of mass communication and digital manipulation, when we can no longer believe what our eyes see or what our ears hear, It may not take persecution to produce apostasy. It may just take someone willing to combine the big lie 
with the right incentives. And you think, oh, yeah, like the Jews back then, where the incentive was believe this lie or die. Yep, maybe. But maybe the right incentives for our day is believe this, di- believe this lie and gain power. Be in control. I've been talking to believers all this time because this is really a chapter aimed at believers. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I I want you to just consider, is is it possible that your unbelief is just such a big lie. I mean, consider the fact that the the, the physical world around you suggests that there is a creator much the same way that the watch on your wrist suggests that there was a creator of that watch. Consider that your conscience, and you have one, suggests that there must be a, a, a transcendent basis for right and wrong, not just a utilitarian one. Why else would your conscience condemn you even when what you did that was wrong helped you? Consider that that your capacity for for love, for self-sacrifice, at least suggests that, that you are more than just an intelligent ape. There is a shameless liar out there, Satan, whom Jesus designated the father of lies. And he has been perpetrating the big lie, a a, a deception that is absolutely outrageous, that there's no God, that actually you and all of your complexity came from the primordial soup, Morals are just situational. This life, that's, that's all there is. There's nothing more to this life. There's nothing after this life. Friend, that lie is an outrageous lie. It is a big lie, as those things that I suggested are, are, I think, pointing out to you. And yet, Satan has been lying that lie for so long and so loud and so shamelessly, and so many other people believe it, that of course, well, it it must be true, right? Friend, I'm here to tell you, you're being deceived. And that deception will lead to your destruction. But how would you know? How would you know that you're being deceived? Wouldn't it take God breaking into history and revealing the truth to you? Oh, yeah, yeah, but but part of the big lie is that revelation isn't possible. It's never happened. Do you see how you're caught inside of a lie with no way out? I'm here to tell you that there is a way out. The witness of scriptures is that there is a God who is in control of history. 
Now, that history makes clear God's people will live as exiles until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and until then, we will be persecuted. But Christian and non-Christian, both, you need to hear this. The witness of history also makes clear, third, that God will deliver his people. He will deliver his people until the end and to the end. Look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, how long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored. At the end of the vision, Daniel hears these two holy ones, these two angels speaking, and one asks the other, how long is this going to go on? And the answer 2,300 evenings and mornings, that is a day, which adds up to about six and one-third years. Now, this is one piece of evidence that the vision concerns Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes, because it corresponds quite closely to the length of his persecution of the Jews. What brings it to an end? Why is it 2,300, not 2,301? Well, Gabriel tells us, in his interpretation. So flip back over to verse 25, the end of verse 25. Yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. You see, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was broken. He was defeated, and not by a, a greater human power or empire. Actually, you can read all about it in uh, First and Second Maccabees, which are not scripture, but are really useful historical literature. Uh, a small guerrilla army of Jews led by the priest Judas Maccabeus actually led a revolt. They defeated Antiochus's much larger army in 164 BC. They went on to purify the temple and restore the temple worship. And the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, which starts in about two weeks from now, celebrates that victory. But that victory is but part of the pattern that God has laid down. The point of 2,300 days is probably not that it corresponds precisely to Antiochus's persecution. It's that it's just short of seven. Six and a third is just short of seven, seven years, seven being the number of completion or, or finality. You see, again and again, God's people have faced persecution. They faced suffering. They faced the judgment of this world. But over and over and over again, God has set limits on that persecution. He set limits on that suffering. In, in fact, he's cut it short so that his people would not be overcome. This is the way Jesus talks about it in, in Mark 13 that we read earlier in Matthew 24, verse 22. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Throughout history, God has cut short his people's sufferings, and he's rescued them. He's rescued them from Antichrist's power. From, from Pharaoh 
to the Assyrian rulers, to Antiochus Epiphanes, to Roman emperors, to modern antichrists like Stalin or Mao or Idi Amin or Pol Pot. Believer, take a look at history. Every power that sets itself up against the Lord and his anointed has been and will be shattered like pottery, says the Lord in Psalm 2. And though we don't know the final trial, we don't know when that final testing will come, what we do know, because we know history, is that victory is assured. The power that animates every opposition, you see, has already been defeated. It's already been crushed. The ultimate antichrist is Satan. And Satan did his absolute level best to defeat God and his purposes at the cross. But what looked like defeat was in fact the Lord's greatest victory. Because there at the cross, Satan was broken. His power was crushed. His claim against us was canceled. And his ultimate destruction assured. Here, here's how Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 2, one of, one of my favorite verses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He, that is Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ has broken the power of Satan. He's canceled the debt we owed by taking our debt onto himself and paying it in full on the cross. Satan's power against you is his accusation against you that you are guilty, a lawbreaker, but Jesus has exhausted that accusation. That accusation cannot be made against somebody who is in Christ because he paid the penalty. The prince of princes has defeated Satan. And so I said to you, if you're not a believer, there is a way out of this bubble of deception, and this is it. It is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust that Jesus, because of what he did on the cross for you and because of his resurrection from the dead, proving that he had won, he is able to transfer you from the darkness of the kingdom of Satan and all of its deception and bring you into the light of the kingdom of God. I would love to talk to you more about that. Many people here would love to talk to you about that. Don't, don't leave without considering what it would mean for you to be set free from the deception that has held you enthralled your whole life. Now, Christian, the death and resurrection of Christ, you see, are, are, are not just these theological truths, though they are, they are historical facts that point forward to our certain and assured future. Because he died, we have died to sin. We have died to death itself. Because he lives, we live 
in newness of life and will live with him forever. This is the way Paul talks about it in Romans 6. This is what we're about to celebrate in baptism here in just a moment. Baptism is this picture that declares his history is my future. He died, and so I died with him, going down into the water. He was raised to life, and so I am raised to life with him and will be with him forever. Christian, live as people whose future is secure. You know what happened in the past. I'm here to tell you that the past is telling you your future. And that future is resurrection. None of us actually know what the specific future holds for us tomorrow or next week or next year. But we don't need to know every detail in order to know what lies ahead. We know that until Jesus comes back, we remain in exile in a world that opposes us and will even persecute us and that is constantly trying to deceive us. We're not anxious people. We're prepared. We know the future because God has already revealed it in the past. And so, no, we are not anxious. We are resolved. We're even joyful right? For, think about 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, we know that the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support us after we have suffered just a little while. Christian history is not a riddle. It's a revelation. With the past under God's control, we have no reason to fear the future. Our Lord is the Prince of Princes, and he has already won the victory. History guarantees it. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and consider what, what, what lie, what deception that would cause you to not trust God, as he's revealed himself in Christ, what, what deception is at work in your mind? And confess that to the Lord. Lord God, you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ. You have revealed yourself to us in history. You have acted in the past in a way that we can know. Lord, we pray that we would not be deceived by the lies of the enemy, by the lies of our own hearts. But we pray that we would trust you here in the present for a future that we know is secure, won by Jesus for us through his death and resurrection. Well, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, even as it's about to be displayed for us in the baptism that we're about to celebrate. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.